It's Tuesday, December 8th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Reports are saying that Attorney General Bill Barr is considering leaving his post before the end of President Trump's term. Trump continues to dispute the outcome of the election, even as the Department of Justice has said there was no widespread fraud, which has put Barr at odds with the president. Devlin Barrett, national security reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for what might be prompting the attorney general to leave early. Next, the 737 MAX is on its way back and American Airlines will be the first to offer flights starting December 29th. In advance of the first commercial flights, after its grounding for 20 months, American Airlines has offered a few demos of the plane, flying around executives, staff, and some members of the media. We'll speak to Leslie Josephs, aviation reporter at CNBC, who was on one of these preview flights and tells us how the experience went and what changes Boeing has made to make the plane safer. Finally, we have two vaccine candidates that are on their way very soon to be approved by the FDA for distribution. But while those may begin being administered shortly, the long haul of vaccine results is just beginning. We have another candidate from AstraZeneca that has released preliminary findings with some promising and confusing results, as well as other trials underway. Sarah Zhang, staff writer at The Atlantic, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. My basic point on on universal mail mail ballots. What I've said is that opens the floodgate to potential fraud and coercion. Joining us now is Devlin Barrett, national security reporter at the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Devlin. Happy to. Wanted to talk about some of these reports we're hearing about Attorney General Bill Barr. They're saying that. He's thinking about leaving before President Trump's term ends in January. You know, there's been a lot of talk. Uh, Obviously, we heard Bill Barr speaking to the Associated Press last week, you know, saying that they haven't been able to find any widespread fraud in the election. We know that angered the president. But this is just kind of one of these stories that we're hearing. It feels like it almost doesn't even make a difference. We're so close to the end of the term anyways. But, But what are we hearing about this? It is true that the attorney general, Bill Barr, has sort of mused out loud to some some of his associates that he doesn't have to stay until the last day necessarily. He might leave before that. But we're also told, you know, he hasn't made any decision and it may not be his choice anyway. As you mentioned, there's been a lot of public anger expressed by the president with Bill Barr over how he's talked about what happened during the election count and some of the stuff he did before the election. And so there is a a sense that like that relationship between him and the president, which was once fantastic, has been bumpy for quite some time. And that may mean that Bill Barr on the last day of the Trump administration, Bill Barr may not be there. We know that the president continues to dispute the outcome of the uh, the election. And and it's not really for any lack of trying on Bill Barr's part to find some of this. I know he authorized attorneys general across the country to look to see if there was any type of fraud. But, you know, we've seen the Trump campaign going to court. There just really isn't any evidence of it there. So when the AP talked to Bill Barr, he just came clean and said, we haven't seen anything, despite, you know, him being one of the president's fiercest supporters. So, I mean, it's just uh, tough to kind of keep that thing going for the president when there's nothing there. And there's been a lot of skepticism within the Justice Department toward a lot of the claims that 
Trump and his supporters have made about supposed election fraud. When you drill down on the individual claims, you know, a lot of these things just don't stand up to scrutiny. And, you know, as, as one election law expert put it to me, the Justice Department usually doesn't have to go out and declare that the world is not flat. But I guess in this case, they decided that they needed to say something because so much of this political fight was going on around them. So it is true that I think the Justice Department in general and Bill Barr specifically have looked at some of the claims made by Trump supporters of fraud and just seen no there there. And I think that's a big source of the frustration. But to be honest, that relationship between the attorney general and the president was sour before the vote counting started. That relationship really soured publicly before Election Day when the president kept complaining that the attorney general wouldn't appoint a special counsel to investigate the Bidens and wouldn't you know, announce some sort of massive investigation against Joe Biden's family. And it was pretty clear that that, that relationship was going south before votes were being cast. On that front, though, there was a development, a pretty quiet one, where Barr did appoint John Durham as as a special counsel looking into the investigation uh, of the Russia investigation itself, basically, trying to find any wrongdoing by the Obama administration. So he did appoint a special counsel in that sense. And that was a clever move on Barr's part in the sense that appointing a special counsel. John Durham is the U.S. attorney in Connecticut, and he ha- John Durham has already spent more than a year investigating this question of the Russia investigation into the Trump campaign and whether any criminal wrongdoing was involved in that. And by appointing John Durham a special counsel, what happens is John Durham's work stays the same. But what Barr has done is he's made it much harder for the Biden administration to shut down John Durham's work once they take over. And so in that sense, it's sort of a a strategic, tactical move on Barr's part to keep that investigation going. However, having said all that, there's no indication that that investigation has really uncovered some smoking gun development from all this time. This issue of what happened in 2016 has certainly been debated and discussed and argued back and forth for a long time. It's not clear to me that what Durham has found really advances the ball any further beyond what other people have already said, which is that significant mistakes and errors of judgment were made back in 2016 by the FBI. Right. Yeah. If there was any big bombshells, we probably would have heard of something by now. Is there a timeline on when his report is going to be due? There really isn't a timeline. And it's not even certain, in my mind at least, that It will definitely end in a report. I think if you look at Durham's track record, when he does these kind of sensitive, politically loaded investigations surrounding Washington, he often takes years to do his work. And it often leads, ends up in a letter that sort of describes the basic outlines of what he did without going into a ton of detail. Now, having said all that, the special counsel regulations actually call for a report to be given at least to the attorney general. So I think we might see some kind of report Whether that report becomes public or not, I think that's another step of the process that could be argued about. What Barr's done is basically keeps that process going forward. Devlin Barrett, national security reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. There's been 20 months of scrutiny and diligence put on line pilots' input, both to Boeing and to the FAA, to make sure that we're safe and that we have the confidence in the aircraft. Joining us now is Leslie Josephs, aviation reporter at CNBC. Thanks for joining us, Leslie. Thanks for having me. wanted to talk about the 737 MAX again. The last time we had you on, the FAA had just given approval 
to uh, uh, Boeing to start flying these planes again. This was after it had been grounded for over 20 months. And just last week, American Airlines, they started flying some executive staff and media on the plane so that they can, you know, get it out there in the public. You were one of those people that were actually able to fly on the plane. I just remember anecdotally, once the news came out, everybody was saying right away, ooh, I don't know, I might want to wait. Let's get let's get a few flights mm-hmm. out of the way before I can go on it. So let's just start there. You did get to ride on the plane. How did it go? Where did you go? How far was the flight? The flight was about an hour. The first flight actually went from Dallas-Fort Worth, which is American Airlines headquarters, to the maintenance base in Tulsa. And they hosted a bunch of media there showing how they were taking the planes out of storage. I took the flight from Tulsa uh, back to Dallas-Fort Worth. It was about an hour, pretty smooth and not a lot to see. I mean, the interior looks not unlike other narrow bodies people have flown on. The 737 MAX was in service for about two years by the time the plane was grounded. So lots of folks have already been on the plane. And the changes that airlines and Boeing are are making to the planes to make them airworthy again, they're not really visible to the naked eye. So there's really not a lot to see that might be different. Tell me a little bit about some of the changes they made. I know pilot training was something different on simulators, something that didn't happen the first time around with this MCAS system. So what other changes did they make? So pilot training is one of them. They, you know, simulator training wasn't a part of the original. and They did add that step. So pilots are starting to cycle through those training modules now. Um, and American Airlines and other airlines are starting their pilots on them very soon. But the system that was implicated, it was the flight control system was implicated in both of those fatal crashes. That Boeing has worked to make that less aggressive and give pilots more control so that in both of those crashes, the pilots essentially fighting this automated system that was activated by getting incorrect sensor data and it continually pushed the nose of the plane down. So now with their upgrade that they've uh, installed and and American Airlines continues and other airlines uh, continue to install on their uh, 737 MAX airplanes, it won't have those same characteristics. More control will be in the, the hands of the pilots. American Airlines is going to be the first to start reflying these planes. It's going to be coming at the end of December, I think. What do we know about that? So they're supposed to be the first in the U.S. to start on the 29th. They're going to start slow, for lack of a better term. They're going to have flights between Miami and New York's LaGuardia Airport. But the goal is to eventually expand this to other airports. I mean, they had 24 of these airplanes in their fleet at the time of the grounding, and they have several dozen more on order. So it's going to be a big part of American's fleet and other airlines going forward for years. But it's going to it's going to take that long to get all those planes into service and onto routes. From my understanding, the airlines are going to clearly note when somebody books a flight and that's going to be on a 737 MAX, and then passengers can have the option to switch a plane or, or do a lot of that stuff. How, how will all that work out? Yeah, so the airlines say that they're going to be very transparent about it. So when you book your flight, you'll see, you know, the time, the date, the routing, and it'll say, seven. you know, when you look at the equipment type, it'll say 737 MAX. There have been some reports out there that the name, Boeing has very gently uh, stepped away from using the name in certain instances. For example, in some press releases, it'll maybe on like the second or third reference, it won't say the word MAX. It'll oh. say 737 or 737-8. <laughs> and even in the 737 MAX that I flew on, the safety card says 737. It doesn't say max. And I actually flew an older model of the 737, which has been in service this whole time on my commercial flight back home. And it was the same safety card. So you're not seeing those things. But the airlines say that well, now that you can book flights on the plane, people don't want to fly in that plane. They will allow them to switch off to another flight. 
we talked about this the last time as well, returning to flying during a pandemic. Let's look at Thanksgiving. Passenger traffic was at an eight month high over Thanksgiving, but that was 40% lower than last year. And obviously health officials don't want people flying too much right now. But this is just one of those other difficulties that these uh, mm-hmm. that airlines, uh, you know, the plane makers, everybody's having this problem right now. That's a bigger problem than the max right now. I mean, because there are so few people traveling and airlines, of course, have to convince people to fly at all, whether they're on a max or they're on an older 737 or they're on an Airbus plane. So that's kind of a bigger concern. Um, And also policing people on the plane to make sure that they're wearing masks and things like that. So we did see a spike in air travel over Thanksgiving holiday, the month high. It was actually just 40% of last year's level. And since then, air travel generally early December is kind of a a lull anyway. We've seen that go back to, I mean, we're like a third of where we were last year. So it remains to be seen how we go at Christmas. Obviously, another big holiday. The peak days are actually in the summer um, when everyone's off. You know, the airports are very full. But the thing is, for airlines, there are so few days that people travel usually for the holidays so they can charge higher fares because everyone wants to get home, get to their families, their friends for the holidays. But now with COVID cases spiking and warnings coming out of the CDC and from other health officials against travel, that remains to be seen whether people go through with their bookings. And airlines have become more flexible saying, okay, you book and then we will allow you to change your flight for another another time. So we could see people canceling and and maybe traveling later when there's a vaccine or maybe cases start to go down, something along those lines. Leslie Josephs, aviation reporter at CNBC. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So in some ways, maybe it is a fortuitous mistake that less vaccine is just as effective or maybe more effective. But that's actually one of the other kind of remaining questions is that it seems to have this 90% number seems to have been based on a really small number of events. Joining us now is Sarah Zhang, staff writer at The Atlantic. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Hey, thanks for having me. Wanted to focus a little bit more on some vaccine news. This story has a little more to do with the AstraZeneca vaccine candidate. You wrote an article about how we're going to be seeing a lot of different vaccine results. And this is just the beginning. Obviously, we have the Pfizer vaccine candidate, the Moderna vaccine candidate. Very good news, over 94% effective against coronavirus. But we're going to need a lot more than just those two vaccines to vaccinate the United States and beyond that, the entire world. So AstraZeneca had some pretty good results, too. But as you wrote in your article, there's a lot of confusing things around it. So We're going to be seeing more news out of them, other vaccine candidates. This is kind of just the beginning from it. But walk us through some of the news that we found out from AstraZeneca. There was different effectiveness rates based on dosing. There was a lot of confusing things that went on with it. So when AstraZeneca announced the results, it kind of put out two different numbers. One is that their vaccine is kind of two shots. So everyone who got two full shots, that was 62% effective. And then sort of interestingly, people who got half of a first shot or a half dose first shot and a full dose second shot, that seemed to be 90% effective. So this kind of seems a little bit strange at first, right? Like why is less vaccine more effective? 
And we don't really know. But one of the things that kind of later kind of came out very quickly after these confusing results is that actually this half dose shot, it was a mistake. It was because the company that was manufacturing the vaccine was just a literally, literally a manufacturing mistake. There was less vaccine in the vial than they thought. So in some ways, maybe it is a fortuitous mistake that less vaccine is just as effective or maybe more effective. But that's actually one of the other kind of remaining questions is that it seems to have this 90% number seems to have been based on a really small number of Events. So we don't actually know if it's real or a statistical fluke, or maybe we do know that the people who got the half dose tended to be on the younger side. So at this point, we just don't really know how to interpret these results yet. As I mentioned, you know, we have the two leading candidates, Pfizer and Moderna. Those are mRNA vaccines. This vaccine, the AstraZeneca vaccine, is different. It's a vector vaccine, and it uses something called an adenovirus. Can you explain that a little bit? So adenovirus is one of the viruses that causes common colds. So basically what Oxford scientists in this case is they took an adenovirus that normally infects chimpanzees. And the reason you want to take a chimpanzee virus is that we all sort of have a little bit of immunity to human adenoviruses. So in order to like kind of get something new to the immune system, you have to go find a chimpanzee adenovirus. And so what they do is they take basically the genetic coding for the spike protein of the coronavirus that causes COVID-19, take that bit of coronavirus protein coding and put that inside the adenovirus vector. So it's kind of like you're almost like using the cold virus as like a children horse to get this little piece of spike protein from the coronavirus inside cells. So this actually kind of gives us maybe a little bit of a clue of why less vaccines might be better. Though, again, we don't really know (laughs) if less vaccines are actually better in this case. But one of the things that can happen with this specific type of vaccine is that your immune system can also learn to recognize that adenovirus vector, that cold virus, and kind of start attacking that instead of just mounting response against the coronavirus protein. So it could be that if you just give a little bit less of that, you kind of thread the needle to kind of give the immune system just enough boost, but not so much that it starts reacting to the vector, the denovirus, but scientists are kind of interested in figuring that out. One of the other big things with all of this is transparency. You know, there's a lot of reluctance on the part of Americans to take these vaccines in the first place. They felt like things were being rushed, all that. These clinical trials are being done in the best way possible, so people should be confident in their results once they're finally done. But the transparency part of it is also an issue. They didn't come out right away and say this was an error, a dosing error, a manufacturing error and all that. It took a little bit of time after the results started coming out that we started realizing all of this. And this is going to be the theme going on for this vaccine candidate and others. The transparency issue is going to be something that's very important. For sure. And I will say to give credit where credit's due, I think Pfizer and Moderna actually did do it a pretty good job with transparency. They released, this is kind of unprecedented, but, you know, we're in precedent at times, they actually released their trial protocols, which kind of let us know, you know, exactly when they're going to look at the data, how many cases, and what they're looking for. And so when they released their results, it was exactly what they told us they were going to do. And it was all quite clear. It had enough detail that I think scientists felt quite confident in this 94, 95% efficacy number. I think AstraZeneca also had released trial protocols for their trial in the U.S. But in this particular announcement, the data actually came from the U.K. and Brazil. And those protocols are also available, at least the U.K. one. But it was, they were just, the data was just kind of combined in the way that was confusing. And as you say, they didn't tell us the half dose was initially a mistake, nor did they specify that, you know, the people who got the half dose was the full dose. They, you know, they were on the whole younger. So if all this had kind of just kind of come out, right, this is like a, a mistake is sort of you don't want to happen, right? And like 
you know, you might argue that in such a case, you should really you know, strive for radical transparency. And in this case, they did not do that. And right. there's only kind of later reporting that started to clarify what actually happened. Sarah Zhang, staff writer at The Atlantic. Thank you very much for joining us. All right. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>